Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, verse 1 of this chapter says. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let me pray for a moment. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word now that you would just uh, uh, meet us here, uh, be, be present, uh, Lord. Um, I pray that um, the Holy Spirit would uh, illuminate this text uh, to us, Lord, and, and show us you in it, Lord. And as we behold you, God, that we'd be transformed from one degree of glory to another. In Christ, amen. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> and in the next string of teachings uh, that are going to make up the second half of this letter, uh, Paul introduces with a command to rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's actually believed that in the early church and during the, the age of the New Testament that this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, maybe was not just a mere command, but more of like um, uh, the equivalent to the Old Testament's hallelujah. So instead of saying, praise the Lord, the common expression among the first century church was rejoice in the Lord. Very similar, but it puts this emphasis on the joy in praising the Lord. It's a hallelujah, a praise of joy to the Lord, which is fitting for this letter, this letter of joy to the Philippians that we've addressed over and over again, that this is the most joyful book in the Bible despite all the persecutions, the sufferings, everything that this church is going through and Paul is going through, the gospel supersedes all circumstances and makes the Christian life joyful. So, he starts the second half of this letter, rejoice in the Lord. But he's not just breaking into a, a praise of hallelujah here or just encouraging them to do the same. Uh, he's actually introducing to the Philippians how to rejoice in the Lord, how it is motivated, how this hallelujah of joy is motivated, and how it is sustained. And, and this uh, shows itself evidently through Paul repeating himself. How do we rejoice in the Lord? Well, Paul thought it had to do with coming back to an old familiar topic over and over again. As he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. See, the key word uh, here is the same things. And it's not that he's just coming back to the same things. What's key is what those same things are. What is he repeating himself with? What is he coming back to here? And in this text, what he's about to do in these first three verses, and then with the first 11 verses in this chapter, is he's going to make this vast distinction between the true gospel of Jesus Christ and those who would supplant it with a new gospel or a perverted version, a distortion of it. So what Paul has no trouble repeating here is the basics of our faith. Christianity, the gospel proper versus the gospel perverted. It's true that he's writing again Something that they already should have known, right? The gospel. They're Christians, right? 
They, they should already know the good news of what Jesus did on the cross for us and how that's different than what other people might call Christianity and push on them. And the thing is, these Philippians for sure knew it. This perversion of the gospel that he's about to bring up is something that other churches fell victim to for Paul, uh, the Galatians in particular. And the Philippians don't necessarily fall victim to it, but Paul is warning them and telling them that it is no trouble for him to keep coming back to the basics. This Philippian church was probably the most mature of all the churches that we see in the New Testament. I've said it before, there's not a single rebuke to the Philippian church at large in this entire letter, and it's the only letter in the New Testament where the church at large is not rebuked. These are mature Christians. They know the gospel. They don't need to keep coming back to the gospel, do they? Well, the thing is, Paul thought it was necessary to do. So why the reminder? Why does he keep coming back to what they already know? It's because coming back to the gospel that we already know over and over again is the only way to sustain our continual rejoicing in the Lord because that's why we rejoice. It's why we praise him with joy. But it is also for our own safety, what does it say? To write the same things is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's safe. What's the implication? That not coming back to the gospel over and over and over again is dangerous, even for the most mature Christians. The gospel is not entry-level Christianity. Now, to be fair, that's how you enter into Christianity. You cannot call yourself a Christian until you have heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again in accordance to the scriptures, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, is what begins our lives as Christians. But that's not where we stop with the gospel it is not entry level. It is what sustains our faith. It creates our faith in Christ. It sustains our faith in Christ. And it will bring us to the end of our faith in Christ. The gospel is all that matters. He understood this. You see, we must make the gospel an explicit and repeated thing in our churches. Our safety depends on it. It must be explicit. It must be explained. It cannot be assumed that we all just know the gospel because we've been saved. We've been saved for a long time, a lot of us, right? And so we can just all assume that we know and remember the gospel. But that's not the case. It needs to be made explicit. Instead, we need these reminders. And the Bible is full of these reminders, the Bible goes out of its way with the people of God from the Old Testament to the New, giving us even tactile reminders as if we couldn't remember these uh, ethereal constructs in our minds. He gives us things like pillars and altars to set up to remember when they crossed the Jordan. That 
was the generation who put up the pillar to remind them. He gave us uh, uh, the Passover. He gave us circumcision, which we'll talk about. In the new covenant, he gives us baptism and the Lord's Supper. Why? What's the point? Because our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. We need reminded of the gospel in its explicit, not implicit sense. And the fault of the modern church is instead of the gospel being front and center in most of our churches, instead of our churches being centered around the gospel and our worship services and our culture, The gospel is often just assumed. It's just assumed that we all get it, which is unsafe, according to Paul. It's unsafe if he doesn't write the same things to them again. You know, history bears witness to this danger as well when we do this. First, the gospel is assumed. We have a large Christian society, maybe, Or maybe just a church that's rooted in history and tradition with a long, beautiful line of Christian men and women who truly believe in the gospel. And it becomes just second nature. Of course, we all know what the gospel is. Now we can dive into the deep waters, right? Now we can get into eschatology, the end times. Now we can get into the nitty-gritty, the stuff that really matters. We are past the gospel, and now we're into our deep, prophetic Bible studies, right? When this happens, when this gospel is just assumed that everyone knows it, it takes a church and a church culture down an almost irreversible spiral to no good end. First, it is assumed that everyone knows the gospel, And then because of that, it is not emphasized. This gospel no longer is emphasized like it was. And then once it's not emphasized, then it's infrequently taught. Maybe we think it's implicit in everything we do, but it's not explicitly told and taught over and over again. Not just taught, but celebrated. That's why we're gathering on Sundays to celebrate his resurrection and ascension. To celebrate the gospel explicitly so it's infrequently taught about, which is just against scripture over and over again in the Psalms. David says, in the congregation tell of the mighty works of the Lord. The gospel is the mighty work of the Lord. So it's assumed and then it's not emphasized and then it becomes infrequent. And then a generation or two later, it is forgotten. It is forgotten. Because the generation that knew the gospel assumed the next generation would get it and didn't make it explicit. The next generation thinks Christianity is about those deeper subjects. Thinks that it's about the end times only. Think that it's about all the periphery theologies and the gospel is assumed and then forgotten. And then inevitably, like we'll see in this passage, When the gospel is forgotten, it is then ultimately replaced by another gospel, a new gospel. Whether that be the prosperity gospel that comes in or the health and wealth or or very popular, just a, a moralism gospel, 
a, a therapeutic deism saying that God rules everything. He, he, he's in control of everything, but he's not personal, and this is my therapy. I come here every week to be reassured of my value and worth, and then I leave. Maybe it's dead ritualism. Maybe it's even works righteousness. But when the gospel is assumed and not repeatedly made explicit, it's ultimately replaced by another gospel. And this has been the fate of nearly all high church mainline denominations in our country who started preaching the gospel, who started on the right track, but somewhere down the line, they had an opposite feeling of Paul where he said, it is no trouble for me to write these same things. It became boring and it became trouble to write these same things because we all already know it anyway, don't we? And then it's lost. And the same thing is happening now in the broader evangelical church. Denominations in our country who are preaching a message that sounds a lot like self-help. And the thing is about these churches is they have what, what you can like to call file cabinet theology, right? They will have a church website. You go to their statement of faith and they'll have a great gospel statement of faith, but then that gospel is never preached. There's a big difference between a gospel-believing church and a gospel-preaching church. And this happens from generation to generation with families as well. Strong Christians who know the gospel fail to teach their children the gospel. And then those children are raised culturally Christian. And then they fail to teach the little they've learned. And then the gospel is replaced with the next generation. We need to come back to these same things over and over again because our spiritual safety depends on it. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. The only message that matters. Everything else that's periphery is important. But when the gospel is not continually preached clearly, it will be lost in your church. An explicit, repeated gospel brings joy and safety to the people of God. This is because the more that you know the truth, the more able you'll be able to recognize a lie. If you know the gospel in an explicit sense, then when a false gospel comes around the corner, you'll be able to see a fake and recognize it for what it is and not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Yes, we go back to the old ways. Yes, we go back to that old repeated message over and over again because it's timeless. It is the message of our salvation. And any new message is one of the devil. This is exactly what Paul continues to tell them to recognize next. This devilish synagogue of Satan message. In the next verse in Philippians 3.2 saying... Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Here we learn that it's not just enough to be doctrinally sound ourselves. 
in our church, but we also must be able to recognize and willing to call out false teachers who preach another gospel. We can't just be satisfied with the fact that we believe a true gospel and then let everyone else who calls themselves Christians be deceived. We also must be on the lookout for the dogs. We must be on the lookout for those who would prefer the message. And this isn't just any light suggestion. It's almost in desperation Paul's telling them three times repeated for emphasis with a sense of urgency. Look out, look out, look out. Next to not preaching the gospel continually, the next most dangerous thing a church can do is be tolerant of people who teach a false gospel. It's grievous to me uh, to know how many false teachers thrive on, on TBN, on YouTube, in the podcast sphere, in Christian bookstores, not only pushing their snake oil to those who run in their circles and churches, but also those who attend gospel-believing churches who aren't gospel-preaching churches. Too often churches are willing to, to have this theology behind the scenes, but honestly, that's just boring. Let's move on to more practical application life sermons. The gospel is assumed. We all know that. We don't need to keep harping on that. Let me tell you how to live a better life. Let me tell you how to get your marriage straight. Let me tell you why, why debt is dumb, right? What can I give these people other than the gospel? And you can say you believe the gospel, but when you preach not the gospel, you're giving inroads to a false gospel to your people. The Bible itself commands us to not only believe in the true gospel, but to mark and call out those who believe in a false gospel. Jesus said it plainly, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. There's the call to recognize them. If you're not recognizing them, then maybe it's because you don't know the true prophet. In addition to this, John, in his first letter to the churches, says that if anyone believes in a false gospel that does not hold to this teaching, don't even receive them into your house. As well as the apostles and the church letters, time and time again, multiple occasions, call out false teachers who've abandoned the faith by name. You see, we are called not only to know the gospel, but to call out false gospels. Going back, back to verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These false teachers' particular false gospel was of a specific breed called the Judaizers. And we'll go on to read more about them in a, in a moment. But these are the same men who, in Acts 15, if we have it, in verse 1, were described like this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then who later said in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise, circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This particular false gospel, said Jesus 
had to be accompanied by circumcision. That grace had to be in part working with your own merit, your own ability to fulfill some type of law. And what's funny to note here, it's kind of lost in English, but Paul actually in this verse says, you know, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's, it's a poetic alliteration even, and when he starts out by calling them dogs, this word for dogs is also in ancient Greek translated many times as perverts. They're perverts. They were perverting the gospel with their addition of circumcision. But even more than that, the literal meaning dog is also used very ironically as a slap in the face to these Judaizers who in this first century Jewish context would consider everyone else a dog. As a matter of fact, that's what they said. They called Gentiles dogs. They were not God's people, and they were not chosen by God like us who are descendants of Abraham. They're dogs. And Paul calls them dogs. The teaching here is that adding anything to the gospel other than grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, makes someone who might think that they're a son of God into an unbelieving Gentile dog in the eyes of God. They might be a Jew according to the flesh, but they are a dog according to Yahweh. Next, they're called evil doers. This is as opposed to a law doer, a doer of the law, as James says, right? They prided themselves in being doers of the law. Remember, verse 5 of Acts 15 says that they must do the law of Moses in addition to circumcision. They were not law doers, they were evil doers. Regardless of their external religion, they were accounted among those doers of evil that will one day be told by Christ, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or you could say, you doers of evil. Thirdly, they're called those who mutilate the flesh. Those who mutilate the flesh. That just kind of got gross. Here Paul is mocking them at their attempts to justify themselves before God through their good works, such as circumcision, by calling what they thought of as their righteousness before God, calling that mutilation. Poetically, this also speaks to the fact that when we add any works of our own to the gospel to justify ourselves, we are cutting ourselves off from the true gospel and the grace therein, harming ourselves, mutilating our spirits in the process when we mutilate our flesh to try to earn God's favor. Instead, what is required of us is simple faith in the gospel given to us by the very love of God, which Paul describes in Galatians 5, 6 when dealing with this same problem of these Judaizers to the Galatians who have fell for their false gospel. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but what? But only faith 
Faith alone, only faith working through love. The addition of anything to grace by faith to the gospel is the subtraction of grace altogether in the gospel itself. Or to put it simply, if you try to add to Jesus, you will lose Jesus. If the gospel equals Jesus' grace plus nothing, then Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Instead, though, we have this hope in Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what does? But a new creation. And this new creation, this new character, bought by the blood of Christ in the true gospel, which transforms us, regenerates us into a new being, is described as looking as such in verse 3, Philippians 3.3, which says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, very ironically, these Philippians were actually Gentile converts who had never been circumcised. Yet Paul calls them the true circumcision. He calls them the circumcision. This is his way of telling them that because of their faith in Christ Jesus and his finished work on the cross, they are counted as the true people of God regardless of their own merit and works and adherence to the law. This is characteristic of the rest of Paul's theology and this distinction between those who claim to be offspring of God by their doing of the law and those who are true sons of God by faith. See, in Romans 2, 29, he says this, but a Jew is one inwardly. I think we have it on the screen. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. In Deuteronomy, when circumcision is introduced, Moses' bewailment over this outward circumcision was the fact that they still needed the, the, their hearts circumcised. That was the ultimate desire behind circumcision. That would be a sign, just like our baptism, our Lord's Supper is a sign of the grace that we've received and the sanctifying grace that we continue to receive. So circumcision was supposed to be. And true circumcision that counts for something is the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from God, but not from man, but from God. Instead of being called God's people, these Judaizers who prided themselves in that were called sons of their father, the devil. In Revelation 3, Jesus goes as far as calling their worship, their congregations, and these were Jewish Christian churches who fell into doing the law for their justification, regarded Christ as Messiah, but disregarded his finished work on the cross. Revelation 3 says 
Jesus calls them twice. They are synagogues of Satan. They are not the true circumcision. Why such harsh words? Because in seeking to justify themselves through works, they forsook the true righteousness of Christ by faith and created for themselves a new gospel. Now, to be fair, it's not that different of a gospel, right? Yes, you can say Jesus was God in the flesh, truly man, truly God, lived a perfect and sinless life, died on the cross in our place, was buried and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father so that if we repent and believe and also get circumcised, we may have eternal life. But it, the devil's in the details. The small change of anything we add to the gospel loses the grace of the gospel. Because what is the heart of that? That's saying Christ's finished work on the cross was not enough. Was it enough? When he said it is finished, I say, nay, Christ, you think it's finished, but let me fulfill the law and meet you halfway. Maybe not even halfway. You've done the 99%. Christ, let me bring a small smidgen of my own righteousness so that I can stand on judgment day and be proud of what I've earned in part at least so that Yahweh will owe me entry into paradise. You see, a small change to the gospel is a truly, infinitely large one. It's harsh words because it's a harsh perversion. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, if they don't repeat themselves, right? If we come with something new, let him be accursed. But of these uncircumcised Philistines, who Paul calls the true circumcision, Paul can call them that true circumcision because of what he also tells the Gentile church in Colossae, in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 14, which says, in him, you were, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. These true Jews, these true Gentiles of the flesh, but Jews unto God, who were the true circumcision, bear fruit in a particular way that a false gospel cannot. Going back to verse 3, what does it say? It says, we are the circumcision for who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
We see that they're marked with three characteristic, characteristics. One that is upward, another that is outward, and one that is felt deeply inward. First, they are true worshipers who worship according to the Spirit. They worship with worship going upward to God by the Spirit of God himself. It's the antithesis of what these Judaizers were doing, who denied the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in raising Christ Jesus from the dead for our full justification and relied on ritualism and tradition and a sense of self-fulfillment. These worshipers, the true circumcision, though, worshiped by the Spirit of God. They were the ones described in John 4 by Jesus to the Samaritan woman at the well, that the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. Secondly, overflowing out of them is a glorifying or boasting in Christ Jesus. And glory in Christ Jesus. You see, a gospel that finds its salvation in anything else but Christ cannot glory in Christ, not fully. They can glory in themselves. They can glory in their own cunning wit to figure out how to earn God's favor in part for what was lacking in Christ's justifying sacrifice. Because it suggests Christ's work on the cross was not enough, a false gospel cannot glory in Christ. Thirdly, these worshipers have a deeply felt inward lack of confidence in themselves, it says, and put no confidence in the flesh. A complete and total self-renunciation of one's own ability to earn their salvation by anything they could do on their own. Which in turn also glorifies Christ as the only confidence they can have is in him and his finished work on the cross. You see, this is the opposite of what false gospels do according to Galatians 6, 13. Saying of those who advocate for circumcision plus grace, works and faith. Paul says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They may think they do. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And in like turn, really boasting in their own flesh because they were able to get you to do it. Not only did they circumcise themselves, how much more favor could they earn if they convinced other people to? Look, God, not only did I complete your law, I got others to as well. And where true worshipers put no confidence in the flesh, they boast in their own flesh and the flesh of others. But he continues in 14 saying this, describing what it looks like to believe in the true gospel. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. True worshipers glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh, but glory in and boast in the one thing we preach, Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's why we're here this morning. 
It's why we are saved. It's why we will be kept saved. And it is why he will be glorified forever and eternity for the work he did, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory in Christ, no confidence in the flesh. Worship by the Spirit of God. And my plea to us this morning is, if you hear that and that, that rings an old familiar tone deep in your soul, then chase that. Repeat it. Tell it to your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors. Tell it to yourself. One of my favorite things about sharing the gospel with someone else is that I share it with myself when I hear myself say it. You need it. Your safety depends on it. I know mine does. I know that when I'm not continually washed with the water of the word and what Christ did for me on the cross, I'm prone to despair in my defeat. I'm prone to forget the love of God for me. I'm prone to look at my sin and meditate deeply on it, forgetting that it was bought by the blood of Christ. I'm prone to wander from God and what he's done on the cross for me. But when I hear that good news, that ancient story told from old, my heart rejoices as it remembers what Christ did for me. And I look to myself and I look to my sin like we did when we confessed earlier. We have self-examination and reflection. But as it's been said many times over again, it still holds true what we should do when we look at our sin. For every look at our sin, we should take 10 long glares at the cross of Christ. We glory in Christ we rejoice in the hope of the glory of the gospel by remembering and repeating what he's done for us. This is all that matters. And his glory is at stake. And he will have his glory in his gospel being told. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you, God, for the beauty of the gospel. I pray it will be ever on our lips. I pray that it would not be the best of many important things, Lord, but it would be the only thing from which everything else flows from. Lord, don't let us despair in ourselves without hope of your justification. Let us not trust in our own works, Lord, whether it be circumcision or, or self-fulfillment. Lord, break our hearts to let us see that we can have no confidence in the flesh. And when we put confidence in our flesh, we are only deceiving ourselves. But you, Lord, are the truth. You gave your life for us, Lord, and we thank you Please bring it to our minds over and over again so that we, we would grow into mature men and women, Lord. 
so that we would remember your love for us and give you the praise and glory you deserve. In Christ.